Good morning once again, and uh, if you're a guest with us uh, today, uh, very thankful for your presence. And uh, just to fill you in, we are in a study through the Gospel of Matthew. It's, we have the, our little sign out there every week that says, uh, please join us uh, for our study. We've been in this study for a few months now, interrupted by uh, Christmas and some other things. Um, but uh, very thankful to have you with us. Uh, if, if you're new with us, we'd love to have an opportunity to, to greet you. Uh, after the service, uh, the, and the easiest way, honestly, is for you to come down here and see me. Uh, I'd really like that to happen. Um, uh, I often uh, desire to get out to the door, uh, but I very rarely make it. But uh, I'd love to meet you. The other pastors would love to meet you. So we're in this study, and, and as I'm customary to do, I, I do an intro different ways. I'm usually asking questions, but today I want to make a couple statements. All right, and I want to talk about modern and ancient headlines. And I'm not joking, these are serious uh, headlines. I'm not, actually, they're not formally uh, headlines, but they're in the news. They've been in the news since mankind uh, fell in, in the garden in one sense or another. Uh, many historical figures were believed to be living moral lives, but were later found to be immoral or criminal. I'm just going to leave that up there for a minute because this is one of the things that, it's a pet peeve of mine. It's, I, it's when, when a pastor is one of those people, someone in ministry, someone claiming the name of Christ or ministering in the name of Christ, and, and, and they have uh, uh, notoriety, maybe they're famous, maybe they're not famous, maybe they're just a, 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 a church, you know, not in the main line of things, and, and, and they, we promote as pastors that we're moral, we're godly, and yet we know many pastors, don't we? I mean, through history and even in recent history that we would say we're immoral and even potentially criminal. And there's just something that doesn't match with that. Think in the area of politics. Politics has headlines where you want to think these people that are leading our country or other countries, whether it be local uh, government or, or country government, whatever, people that are put in places of leadership, you would like to think that they're moral and ethical, not immoral and criminal. But I think as we talk about modern and ancient headlines, this is something that we see all around you. I thought about naming names, but I, I thought, well, probably not the healthiest thing to do from the pulpit is to name names of famous people. And I might say one that is uh, too close to, 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 to you, or maybe you didn't even know some of these people. Then I started thinking it's more effective for us to just consider this statement from the standpoint of who do you know in your own mind, you don't need to speak this out, who do you know that you loved and respected and yet they did wrong? And, and, and they even claimed faith in Christ. And maybe they did have faith in Christ. I'm not trying to say that Christians can't do wrong things. But I think there are people in this room and watching us online that would say, yeah, it hurts when a former school teacher or a former pastor or uh, 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 someone from Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts or one of those things did something wrong. So the fact is history is full of these figures. But there's one historical figure that was believed to be, actually be a criminal and living an ungodly, he was believed to be living an ungodly life, but was later found out to be the one sent by God. And, and it's not any surprise who I'm talking about. There is only one that fits this bill, that fits this description, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as we are going to see in our text and we're going to see throughout the rest of our study in Matthew, we're going to see that he was not initially thought to be a criminal, but he was hung like a criminal on a cross. He wasn't necessarily always thought to be living an ungodly life, 
But in this text that we're going to look at today, he's actually portrayed as being ungodly. And so we're going we're gonna to walk through uh, 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 Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, as we go through. So we're going to look at both parts of this story. The fact that some people think he, he was, thought he was ungodly, and, and other people uh, uh, think that he is the one sent by God. And so we're gonna, that's the format for, for the sermon today. So part one of the story basically says there's some people who believe that Jesus was an ungodly man. Now, there are only a few, and we're going to look at them, and then I'll just tell you, their names is the scribes. In our, in our story today, they're the scribes. And these people actually believe that Jesus was an ungodly man. And we're going to get to the reason they might have thought that after we do some uh, walking into the text a little bit more. So we'll, we'll, the, the, the point of their, from their perspective is that the evidence seemed to support their belief. And so I'm asking you, don't make a judgment on the scribes just yet. Put yourself into their place and see how, how the events that are going to uh, unfold through these uh, eight verses, how it would have hit you if you were in their position, all right? So it, it begins, chapter 9 begins with, so he got into the boat, uh, into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Now this is important for us. I could have ended the sermon on this verse uh, last week, but if you remember last week, we, we talked about uh, Jesus uh, and his disciples. They got into the boat at Capernaum, and they traveled over to Gergesa or Gadar, Gadar, uh, the Gadarenes uh, is another way uh, that's the, translated. So we, he went across, and that's where he, he on, the, on the sea, he calmed the winds and the waves. He gets on the other side. He, he uh, um, uh, gets rid of, he uh, sends the, 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 uh, the demon-possessed individuals. He heals them. He casts out the demons. Right? We, now we're told in this verse that he got back into the boat, and they crossed back over, and they basically went right back. They went right back over back to Capernaum. This is not his home, as in we know he was born in Bethlehem, but this is his adopted home. This is where he his base of operations of ministry. Uh, this is where he, uh, that's where he called most of his disciples out of this area. So he got in the boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city, uh, Capernaum. And then we see in verse two, then behold. Now, I, when you come across these words, one of the reasons I'm stepping into this slowly is that we could read these eight verses and be like, oh, yeah, I know that one. But we're going to just walk in little by little, and we see this word behold. This word is in the Greek, it's, uh, I think it's pronounced edu, all right? Uh, but it's used 61 times in Matthew, and it's, the word is used to emphasize what, what's going to follow in the story. So we, we see that he gets into the boat, and then verse 2, then behold. It's the same word that was used when, when, uh, in, the narr- in the birth narrative of Jesus, right? Angel appears, behold. Right? It's like uh, we're supposed to grab our attention. So what is this story that's supposed to grab our attention? Well, it's a story that tells of they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. We're familiar with this story. In, in the Mark 2, 1 through 12, and the Luke 5, 17 through 26, it's actually a, a more filled out story. Uh, and, and so in the, it's usually the condensed stories are in Mark. Mark's the shortest gospel, uh, but in this particular case, Matthew is the shortest version. And, uh, and there's a few details that, that we ought to know from these other ones, and that is one, we know that four men carry this paralyzed friend. It wasn't, just, uh, it wasn't just Jesus sitting on the side of the road and these people came up. Jesus is in a home, and he's, it's crowded with people. These four uh, men are trying to carry their friend 
I don't know what that was, but hopefully it won't happen again. Um, scared me. I don't know if it scared you, but my heart's like, I'm going to check my watch, right, see if I'm having palpitations here. Uh, so they're, they're coming in, and they can't get to Jesus. So they go through the roof, all right? And so as they went through the roof, this is significant. And, but Matthew just doesn't, I'm not trying to put Matthew down, right? This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But for Matthew's purposes, he didn't see the need to go into the details. But the, the other two, out of Mark and out of Luke, we see these details fleshed out a little bit more. It actually makes it easier to, for us to understand, behold. Behold, because these people went to great lengths to help their friend. So then behold, uh, what's the main thing? They brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Uh, and so we see that in, as verse 2 continues, when Jesus saw their faith. So he's, he's a witness to these events, Jesus is. Oftentimes we talk about witnessing Jesus' events. Jesus is actually witnessing something transpire as he does throughout the, the Gospels. We see him. But we, we ought to recall that when we see faith coming on center stage here, which it is, we ought to recall to us, we just talked about this last chapter with the, with the uh, faith of the centurion. Remember his, his, his uh, servant was, was uh, sick, and he said, listen, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house, Jesus. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was like, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And here there's this Gentile centurion who is showing great faith. But now... Jesus says, behold, they brought him a paralytic, and he says he saw their faith. So the other thing I wanted to point out is this time it's actions that gets Jesus' attention, not just words. Remember that, that, uh, that centurion, actually, as the other gospels uh, make, make clearer, it was the fact that the, the centurion sent his servants to talk to Jesus. He didn't even feel worthy to talk to Jesus face to face. But nonetheless, God... Uh, Jesus Christ, God the Son, um, recognized the faith of that centurion and honored it. And then he sees the faith of these four friends and the individual, right, and the, the paralytic. And he says to the paralytic, right, when he saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. And this is where I need you to pause. Put yourself in the place of that paralytic. Put yourself in the place of the people watching this event this is, this is on public display. And ask yourself, what do you think was going through the minds of the people who were present? Right? I mean, I, seriously, if you could go back in time, if you could get in the, that, the fictional uh, time machine and go back, I know I would want to go back and see Jesus. I'd want to see some aspect. I'd, I would have to figure out which part I would want to see. All right? But think about this. These people are witnessing something. They're there because of his popularity and all the things that he's done. What do you think those think people were thinking when he says, son, be of good cheer? Well, this is, this is the way I phrased it. Cool. We get to see a miracle. That's what I'm thinking. I would be thinking that. I'm like, oh, yes. I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm, I came to Jesus. I'm, I'm hearing his kindness, his, his kindness and his words. And, and, and he speaks with authority, not like the scribes. We've already heard that. But I think many people were going to see Jesus for the spectacle. They wanted to see him cast out a demon or he'll say, hey, they brought a paralytic. I'm surprised they didn't rush him in so that they could see the miracle. All right? That's what I would have been thinking. 
son, be of good cheer. But what do you think the paralytic was in the paralytic's mind at that very moment? Son, be of good cheer. Well, I think it's along the same lines. All right. Jesus is going to heal me. Because remember, people knew Jesus was capable of hearing, uh, healing, but they didn't know, necessarily know if he would heal. There had to be that question mark because, you know, not, he didn't, he, I mean, he healed everybody that came to him according to the, the previous text that we looked at on that day. But I'm sure there were others that never experienced the healing touch of Jesus. But here's this person, and Jesus saw their faith, and he says, son, be of good cheer. And he's like, all right, Jesus, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand and walk. And then Jesus continues and says, your sins are forgiven you. What do you think was going through the minds of the people and the paralytic at that moment? The people might be there to genuinely out of interest and in, 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 uh, maybe even demonstrating their own faith in Christ. Maybe they're coming from the spectacle. But I tell you, I don't think there was a single person probably in that room. I can't say that with biblical authority, but I can say it from a human perspective and just say, listen, if I was one of those people, those are not the words that I would have expected Jesus to say. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And I love this because we, we joke about it. Years ago we joked about it. One of us is fond of saying these words and on staff. And I was like, wait, what? Think about it. This, what are we talking about? Forgiving of sins. The, the truth is, up to this point, Jesus was known as a great teacher and a great healer. But now he introduced the purpose of his ministry. He's talking about the forgiveness of sins. The defining aspect of Jesus' ministry is that only he can forgive sins. That if, if you were to take this portion of Jesus' ministry out, you would have another prophet you would, have, uh, you would have another good person. You might have a moral uh, role model. But you wouldn't have the Son of God. You wouldn't have the, the Jesus. Remember, we talked about last week, there's all kinds of different Jesuses out there. But there's only one Jesus portrayed in Scripture. And the one that we see portrayed very clearly is the one who is able to forgive sins. So this is not what the, the people or the paralytic were expecting. And I, I think we can believe that because of the response that we're going to see in, in a moment by some of the people who were there. But can you put yourself in their place for that moment and ask yourself, how would it have hit you? Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. See, the problem is we have a 21st century approach to the text. And we have to put ourselves in the first century and say, how would this have come about in our life? They would have been comfortable. This is, this is the reality. Those people in that day, they would have been comfortable seeing a miracle. But forgiving sins made no sense. Can you imagine that? They were looking for a miracle. They expected a miracle. It wouldn't have surprised them. They would have been giddy with happiness to see a miracle. But this idea of forgiving sins was like, Something's not right here. But I think I thought to myself how times have changed, right? How times have changed. Now go from first century to 21st century. And when I first learned about Jesus, I had no thought of seeing a miracle. It wouldn't have even occurred to me to see a miracle when I first learned about Jesus, right? But I expected forgiveness. 
because that's what everyone says Jesus does. And so I thought, after all, doesn't Jesus have to forgive sins since I go to church and try to do good? That's the person I was in my pre-born-again state, my pre-salvific state, my, my before I was brought from death to life, I was in death, and in my death, I thought, well, yeah, that's who Jesus is, right? He's the one who forgives. And he does, but it's on his terms and not ours. So the fact is, does Jesus have to forgive sins? No, he doesn't. He does not have to forgive. We see in the text here, when Jesus saw their faith, notice the end, your sins are forgiven. You have faith and forgiveness brought right in close proximity together. He saw their faith, and Jesus responded with forgiveness. And I think what we have going on in our community, in our life, is we're so used to talking about forgiveness, we forget about the faith part. We forget that we are actually called to be people of faith. We're called to respond to Jesus in faith because faith in Jesus is what leads to forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to, again, I'm just kind of bringing you back to, to my experience, assuming it's similar to the experiences that you had because there's not a single person who's come to faith in Jesus Christ that has not changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if, if any person be in Christ, they are a new creature. You don't, you don't get born a Christian, raised a Christian, and die a Christian and go to heaven. You might get born into a Christian home, but at some point in time for you to experience Christian life and Christian eternal life, there has to be a change that takes place in your life. And that change has to be an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. If you truly want to have forgiveness of sins, you must come to faith in Jesus. That's, that's the biblical teaching. Faith in Jesus leads to forgiveness of sins. We, we see that in Ephesians 2.8. It's a very famous passage, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So as you look at this text, I underlined faith, but please understand, grace it's God's unmerited favor. He, you didn't deserve salvation. You didn't deserve forgiveness of sins. Jesus is not obligated to, to, just because you go to church, he's not obligated to forgive you. You must have faith. And then the grace of God is extended to you. And, and as you read this, for like, by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves, it is the gift. What's the gift? Well, many people believe it's the grace and the faith. Because people say, well, isn't faith a work of man? No, faith is a work of God. God draws you to himself. And I wonder, have you ever sensed the drawing of God in your life? Where you're just like, God's just like, you're, you're, you're mesmerized by his word and, and the thoughts of Jesus. And you're like, I got to know more. I got to know more. I don't understand these things. I've been, grow I've been brought up in a Christian home. I've never been in a Christian home. Whatever your circumstance might be. God draws people to himself. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we understand we're convicted of our sin. And then we, when we recognize that sinfulness that we have, then we recognize we're in need of forgiveness. And we call that forgiveness when it's experienced being saved. That's the text here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace and faith come together and God does his work in our lives and we are changed. We are changed. 
So Jesus' statement of forgiving sins, it, it actually led to what I'm going to call shock and awe. This is something that in the military world you hear quite often, especially when the Air Force is getting ready to, to, to prep the military or the, or the Navy. Excuse me, I'll say the Air Force or the Navy. Uh, they're getting ready with their big missiles and their, all, their, uh, all the, the ordnance that they have. You know, they come on and they say, you know, they bring the shock and awe and they wipe everything. They just make a big display before the foot soldiers and, and, and Marines go in and do their job, right? So we're familiar with this shock and awe, but I want you to see that for Jesus to make this statement about forgiving, this isn't a minor thing. This is going to bring shock and awe into people's lives. So the scribes, they were shocked. Notice what it says. It says that, uh, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. They, it did not take them long. Have you ever been in that, uh, a particular circumstance where, where you know the truth and someone says a lie and you're like, ooh, that's wrong. I know that's wrong. I was there. I witnessed it. I know the truth and what you're saying. Police officer, please don't believe him. I know the truth. I was there. And you bring a witness. Here we see these, these individuals, these scribes, Listen, they, would, they were well-respected in their community. They were experts on the Word of God. They knew the, 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 the text of Scripture inside and out. And at once, some of these scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Now, we're not necessarily used to the word blaspheme. Many of you might be, but some of you might not be. So to blaspheme means to speak in a disrespectful way. That demeans someone, it denigrates someone, it maligns someone. When you, to blaspheme is not a good thing. And we see throughout the Bible that, that there are examples of blaspheming people and, and examples of blaspheming God. We tend to think it's only God. But I actually have two examples uh, of, of the way blaspheming can be experienced uh, toward man, uh, men and women. All right? says here, remind, this is out of Titus. This is Paul writing. This is one of the pastoral epistles. And he's speaking to Titus. And he's saying, hey, remind them. Who are them? I'm assuming these are the, the, the church people, right? So if I was Titus, I'd be, Paul would be saying to Greg, hey, tell the church people, right, to be subject to the rulers and authorities. When I would tell you to do that, especially at an at a, uh, election uh, year and as we live in, a, in, in our society, uh, obeying the authorities, uh, uh, being subject to them is a good thing, That's all right, uh, uh, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Listen, I'm going to encourage you, be ready for every good work, right? You never know what God's going to label you to do. To speak evil of no one. That idea to speak evil, that's the word, the same root as blaspheme. We're not supposed to blaspheme anyone. That's what it says here. Now, I've got to be honest, I'm probably guilty of this in, in politics, of, of looking at certain individuals and, and probably not saying too kind of things about them, and I need to stop doing that, and so do you, all right? But it's the idea, listen, we're told as Christians, we are to speak evil of no one, not rulers, not friends, or, or, or not friends, you know, those that we would not be happy to be around. He says to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So we can blaspheme one another or those are even strangers to us. But notice in 1 Peter, Peter writes, he says, For we have spent uh, enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Notice, this is my former, some of this is my former life and maybe it's some of yours, right? When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Listen, we used to walk like them. 
in regard to these things, they, the people who are still walking in those things, think it's strange that you, born-again Christian, do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Listen, you can experience being blasphemed. When you don't participate in the things that, the, the, the sinfulness that is out there in our world, when you say, no, I, I'm not going to participate. I, I'm not going to do these things. Why? Because of my faith in Jesus Christ. I want to honor God with my life. And, 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 and so all these things that he describes here are, are areas that would not bring glory to God. Listen, when we make those decisions as Christians, people are going to blaspheme us. They're going to speak ill of us. They're going to malign us, right, as we talk about the definition of what it means to blaspheme. And then here's the, one that, the example of the one talking about people who blaspheme God. This is in, the, in Revelation, so this is obviously at future time. But notice, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. This is the idea of blaspheming the name of God of saying derogatory things, of maligning God, and putting God in, 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 a, in, a, in a light that is not pleasing and it's not giving glory. This is what, when we think of blaspheme, this is what we think of, and this is the sin that the scribes were accusing Jesus of committing. They had no idea he was the Son of God. All right, we can all acknowledge that, right? They were basically accusing Jesus of blaspheming against himself. But they didn't know that yet. These are people who are given to the study of God's Word. And we know what God's Word says, and we'll look at it in a second, but they know what God says about those who would blaspheme God. This is a very serious sin. So, so part one of his story is that no one would have believed that Jesus was an ungodly man, or uh, no wonder they believed that Jesus was a godly man. They're saying, you're maligning God. By him saying your sins are forgiven. He was saying it. He didn't say, as one commentary wrote or, uh, writer wrote, he said, uh, he didn't say your sins will be forgiven in the future or that they have been uh, forgiven in the past. What Jesus was saying at that moment, Jesus was claiming the authority to forgive him of his sins. And they're saying, that's blasphemy. And if we had been in that room, knowing what we know about Scripture, we may have been like, you're right. You, we, we could have even said, amen, that's true. The evidence seemed to support their belief. If this was any other man than Jesus, they would have been correct. And that's what I want you to appreciate about these scribes and what's going on in this text. It's a simple story. So people bring a friend, they blow him through the roof. Wow, they went to great extent. They dug through the roof and brought him down there. That's not the point of the story. That was the evidence of faith. The point of the story is Jesus comes on the scene and says, I forgive you of your sins. What? That's blasphemy. And it would have been if it had been any other person. So part two of this of his story is the fact that many people believe that Jesus was sent by God. And the reality is their evidence seemed to support their belief. So let's continue on in the text. He says in verse 4, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, that's, that's talking about potentially a divine initiative, right? He knows what they're thinking. 
Now, there is this, the, the, the ability that Jesus does know those things, right? I'm not doubting that, that he's able to do that. But sometimes we have encounters with people, and we're like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're thinking. Or we even say it. I know what you're thinking. Now, sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. Jesus is never wrong, all right? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Notice he, he characterizes that as evil. This is blasphemy. Now, there's uh, the belief that they said it only in their minds. There's belief that they whispered it among each other. But the, the reality is everyone in that room knew that what Jesus said was a watershed statement. You don't walk away from a statement of saying, I forgive you your sins, and expect life to be the same as before you said it. This is an amazing statement that Jesus makes. So he knew his words would bring a strong reaction. He, he said them to shock those listening so they would pay attention. And I think it should shock us. Jesus is one who forgives sins, and he's just a man sitting with other men. What right does he have to do that? By revealing their hearts, Jesus paved the way for them to see their own sin. Have you seen your sin? I, I can't tell you how um, eye-opening it is to understand that you are a sinner before a holy God. Most of the time, we want to just walk away and pretend it didn't really happen. When is sin most prevalent in people's minds? When is the, the reality that, that sin is an affront to God? When does it come fully in our face? I'd say at a funeral. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says, right? The wages of sin is death. We go to a funeral and we, we realize our life is temporary. Scripture says it's but a vapor. That's the consequence of sin is death. And so by Jesus revealing the heart of the scribes, he was actually paving the way for them to see their own sin and potentially come to faith in him. Isn't that beautiful? You know, we hear about Jesus and he's confounding the, the religious leaders and all those things, but he's also loving them. He's loving them here. He's pointing out, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Well, how did you know I was thinking evil in your hearts? Right! I know that you are. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? And he, and he, he presents them very clearly. What's easier, right? A or B? And I think it's interesting that Jesus has used words up to this point in the text to heal people, to cast out demons, to calm storms. And now he used words to forgive sins. But they were good with the first part of it. This, this part is like, wait a minute. But he noticed, he says, what's easier to say? Remember, Jesus is involved in creation, and creation was spoken into existence. John 1, 1 through 18, talks about the Word of God. The Word uh, the, uh, that He was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God, right? Verse 14, and, 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 and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about this just last week, I think. But Jesus is in the habit of using words, and His words have power to do all these things. Each time Jesus used his words to do a miracle, he was declaring his God-given authority over everything, even sin. And so I, I don't know how this is hitting you today because it's a very simple story, but I want, I want to draw you in a little bit more and more and more and understand that God has given Jesus authority over everything and everyone 
And I have to believe at any point in time, there's someone in the room or watching us online that has not taken a knee and bowed in respect in honor of the authority that Jesus Christ has on their life. You have atheists who say, well, I don't believe God. Well, that's their religion. A religion is what you believe about God. They believe there isn't one. But believing that there isn't a God or believing that Jesus isn't the Savior, that he isn't God the Son, doesn't remove the reality that if Scripture is true, then you are rejecting your only means of being reconciled to God. Jesus was declaring his God-given authority with all his words of casting out the, the demons and calming the storms and forgiving sins. Verse 6 says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He's talking to the scribes, but I think specifically, but certainly the people, other people are in the room. But I think he's, he's, in a sense, ministering directly to the scribes. Why are you thinking evil in your thoughts? Is it easier to say, you know, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And he says, but that you may know. And right, And so Jesus wanted even the scribes to know about his ability to forgive sins. It's toothpaste out of, it's toothpaste out of, the, out of the tube, right? Jesus squirted it out there. There's no taking that back. He's either guilty of blasphemy or he's God. That is what's at stake in this story. He said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. He did it. And I, I, I want to ask you, as often as we read this text, aren't we mesmerized by the miracle of a lame person walking? And that's certainly what got everybody's attention, but I want us to understand that wasn't the focus of what Jesus was accomplishing. Jesus could have just healed the man, but instead he used the man's physical disability to highlight everyone's spiritual disability. We're all born in this world with a disability. We, we do not have the ability to live in the presence of God for eternity. We, have, we do not have the ability to honor God with our life here and now when we're born in our sinful state. But Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to bring us back to a healthy relationship with God. So this is the turning point in Jesus. This is a turning point, I would say, the way I look at it. This is a turning point in his ministry. He has said the words, and there's no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. It's out. Jesus' statement of forgiving sins led to shock and awe. All right? It did. It, it shocked the scribes. But as we go on in the story, we see it, it, the people were in awe. They were in awe, as they should have been, right? It says, now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had been given, who had given such power to men. They marveled. We, we, we talk about the marveling aspect. And we, uh, in just a previous chapter uh, or, or earlier in the book, we see that Jesus uh, marveled at the faith of the centurion. Yeah, the last chapter. In Mark, uh, I forget what chapter now, but in Mark it's either seven or nine, I forget. He marveled at the lack of faith of the, of the scribes, of the of religious leaders. He marveled at their lack of faith. Wait a minute, you see these miracles, you see these things I do, and yet you will not believe that God has sent me? Well, these people said, 
They marveled, and they responded to God, not to Jesus. They glorified God, as they should have. So to understand Jesus, we must consider all the evidence. Not just the evidence that we want to believe, but we must consider all the evidence. So think about it. Words with no healing. If Jesus had just spoken the words with no healing, uh, words with no healing could have resulted in Jesus being stoned to death. Right? If, he, if he had just spoken the words, your sins are forgiven. In the present tense, declaring that he had the authority and the ability to forgive sins. If he didn't heal the person, he could have been stoned. That's what Leviticus 24.16 says. And I know it's hard for you to read, but it's, it's there. All right? uh, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, God says. All the congregation, congregation shall certainly stone him. The stranger, as well as him who is born in the land, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. The scribes were right. The penalty for what he was saying is severe. And we know, and we're going to see as we continue on the gospel, there were times where they wanted to put Jesus to death because of his claims. But we notice they feared the people rather than fearing God. And they, they failed to recognize the truth of the miracles, right? So if words with no healing could have resulted in Jesus being stoned to death, healing without words of forgiveness would have failed to communicate Jesus' purpose in coming. This is why Jesus came. He didn't come to just heal and be popular. He came to let people know he is capable of forgiving their sins. That is why he hung on the cross. That is why he died in your place and in mine. Because the sinless lamb hung on that cross as a substitute for you and for me. His sinlessness brought into account to pay for all of our sins. That's the gospel. But if Jesus just healed and never said a word about forgiveness, people wouldn't have known anything and his, his ministry wouldn't have continued the way it did. So when all the evidence is considered, Jesus is neither a blasphemer nor just one sent from God. He's, he's neither of them individually, but he, what he is, is he is God the Son. That is the message that is being, that is beginning. Remember, he, he's called himself multiple times the Son of Man. It's reference to, 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 a, to a prophecy in Daniel, and, 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 he's, and, and he's using it about himself. But people don't understand fully what he's saying. But now that he has brought the forgiveness of sin center stage, people are taking notice, and it's dividing people, and it still divides people. Jesus forgives sin, and he's the only one who was able to do that. And we're thankful that he, that he enacted and spoke these miracles into existence because it, it gave credibility to a statement. Because what he said, what's it easier? To, to your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk? He did both. And many believed and many did not believe. So when all the evidence is considered, even some of those who were shocked by his words believed in him. I wanted to make this point. Because remember, these scribes, at this particular point in time, Jesus is just a man. They don't know any better. And their worldview and, and, and everything they know is screaming, this is wrong. But I want you to know, over time, 
when the evidence is considered, even some of them, I, I can't say specifically scribes, but the text of Scripture says in John 12, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. We're talking about the rulers of, 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 of Israel. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. So they weren't the boldest uh, believers, uh, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we, we, we know in Jesus' lifetime, they didn't necessarily uh, claim to follow him, although we know there were a few. But when you get to Acts chapter 6, we see, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. How, how marvelous, right? I was in, uh, it was a year and a half ago at this point probably in Zambia, and we're, we're having coffee with uh, a gentleman who, who was in the training to be a priest. And Jamie, where are you? Let me see your hand real quick. Was he a priest or was he in training to be a priest before, when he got saved? Oh, no, when he left. He was in training. He was training to be a priest. And, and, and in the midst of this, there were some things that took place, disillusioned him. He walked away from God completely. And it was, a buddy, he still carried all that knowledge with him. And then at one particular time, God brought someone into his life, circumstances into his life, and he comes to faith. Listen, folks, I don't know who you think is beyond the grace of God, but I choose to believe no one is. No one is beyond the grace of God. And we, as we see the story unfold, let's have compassion for these scribes. They were doing what they thought was right, just like Paul was thinking about what he was doing for right and later found out it was wrong. So I ask you this morning, have you considered all the evidence? For many of you in this room, yes, you have. You have, you have professed your faith in Christ. You've lived the Christian life. But for some of you, maybe you haven't. Because faith in Jesus leads to forgiveness of sins. That's the point of the story. But let me, let me just share. If you are here this morning and you've never come to faith, you need to come to faith. For who Jesus is. He's God the Son. He's not just a good moral person. And he died in your place on that cross to pay for your sins. That's the truth. And if you will come to faith in who he is and what he's done on your behalf, you too will be brought from death to life. But don't just pray a prayer not knowing fully who Jesus is. Learn who Jesus is. See what Scripture says about him and how he has changed lives for centuries, and he can change yours too. But the other thing I wanted to bring up, for those of us that have come to faith, right, we're not in need of, of forgiveness of sins, right? Our sins have been forgiven past, present, and future by the blood of Jesus Christ. But I will say this, that because if you, if you have already come to faith in Christ, I don't have the scripture up here, it's in Second Corinthians, I believe, we have been called to a ministry of reconciliation. We, God, because he redeemed us, because we are reconciled to him, he has given us the ministry of reconciling others to him. And that means we need to live life together with unbelievers. And we need to share our faith. And we need to share our story of how Jesus changed us. And do it unapologetically. Do it kindly. Do it in love. Do it with respect. Do it with compassion. Do it with boldness. But let's do it. Let's tell people about Jesus so they can have their sins forgiven when they come to a genuine faith in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for...
your word this morning and for the encouragement it is to know that we can stand with confidence on the truth that is on display whenever we open the Bible. Father, we thank you for, the, for your goodness and your love and your mercy. We thank you for the gospel. And Father, we thank you that we can look at these eight verses and not walk away thinking, isn't that nice, Jesus healed a lame person. But rather walk out of here in awe that Jesus forgives sins. Help us not lose sight of our forgiveness. And give us compassion, Lord, to be involved in seeing others come to that truth and have their life made right and reconciled to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.